I, uh, I love you guys. And, and anyway, I'm getting, I'm getting modeling. So tonight we're going to finish, Lord willing, the book of Ezekiel. These last nine chapters, we're looking at the description of the temple. We looked at the, the description of the temple, um, verses 40 through 43. We then looked at the worship that takes place in the temple, chapters 44 through 46. And tonight, we end with looking at the land and the waters around the temple. So beginning in verse 1, Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, for the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from south of the altar. I'm sorry, I'm in Ezekiel 47, if anybody's not sure where we're at. Verse 2, he brought, me up, he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate by way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. This portion of scripture, verses 1 through 12, sometimes called, is sometimes called the vision of the living waters. Even some of those who take chapters 40 through 48 to be symbolic or figurative admit that this description is to be taken literally. Now, although that's not a a unanimous ringing endorsement for it to be taken literally, it does hold a special place for most commentators and and Bible scholars um, directly concerning these waters. Now, here's a little bit of information that I found interesting in my studies. I didn't know this. Jerusalem is pretty, it's a, it's a strange location for a city because it has no major waterways. I didn't know that. Babel is built on the Euphrates River. Cairo is on the Nile River. And Rome is on the Tigris. But Jerusalem has no rivers. Its chief water supply was a spring, the Gihon Springs, fed the Pool of Siloam. Um, If you go to Israel, you can walk through Hezekiah's tunnels and wade through the Gihon Springs. It is said that this is one of the defects that the prophets who look forward to better times prophesied would be made right that they don't have any rivers. Dave was telling me that if you're claustrophobic, this is not some place you want to go. You've been through this, right, um, Byron? Is it that tight? Wow. It's dark, too? Dave was going to send me pictures of when he went, but he said his camera couldn't deal with the, with the darkness that was, that was there. How many of you could actually deal with that closeness? Could you deal with it being that tight? And he says, once you get in there, there's no turning back. You're committed to going, right? (laughs) They'd be carrying me out of there, I think. And I'm not not claustrophobic, but I think looking at those pictures and the the rest of the ones I found on the Internet, I'm like, oh, my goodness. How long does it take to get through that, Byron? Ooh. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> Keep me moving through. <laughs> Let's run. <laughs> um, Psalm 46, 4 speaks of this. It says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. Ezekiel was led back to the door of the temple. Ezekiel saw something that never existed in the temple before. A river flowing from the house of God. In all of its recorded history, Jerusalem never had such a river. There were streams and springs, but never a rich, mighty river. Never one flowing from this part of the city. In the semi-ardent geography of Israel, a river like this was both a blessing and a miracle. It would bring life, growth, vitality, refreshment, hope, and security. Joel 3.18 speaks of it this way. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to the waters of the valley of Shittim. Zechariah 14.8 says, And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the east sea and the other half towards the west sea. It will be in a summer as well as in winter. So if this passage teaches us anything, it reveals that all this will be a result of the workings of God's miraculous power. Continuing on, verse 3. When the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits, and he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the knee. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through water, water reaching the loins. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not ford, for the water had risen enough, enough, enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. So Ezekiel's unnamed um, guide followed the course of the river, and it flowed out to the east. After 1,750 feet or 1,000 cubits, the water was ankle deep. Another 1,000, the water was knee deep. The angel measured another 1,000, and the water reached Ezekiel's waist. And a fourth measurement, and the water was deep enough that he could swim in. Now remember back at verse 2, at the end of verse 2, what did it say? And behold, the water trickled from the south side. So it went from a trickle to water that one could swim in. Only the power of God. Only the power of God. One commentator wrote this. The river is like the blood of the Messiah from the cross of Calvary that began as a trickle. The blood, like the river, became a flood of redemption for all people, including Israel. Just as the water of life that the prophet saw coming from the threshold came forth gently, 
then began to flow as a mighty life-healing river. When God's word is received, he transforms death into life, produces life in abundance, springing up as life-giving water within every person. This abundant sustenance was made available to all people through Jesus Christ, end quote. Verse 6, he said to me, son of man, you see this? Then he brought me back to the bank of the river. Now, when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there was very many trees on one side and on the other. Then he said to me, these waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arba. And then they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there, and the others become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it, from Engedi to Eglin, there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kins, to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many. But its swarms and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. By the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their, water, because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be food and their leaves for healing. Wow. So once out of the river, Ezekiel noticed that many trees, they grew along both sides of the river. The deepest valley rift in the world is the Arba in the Holy Land. The waters of the river will flow east through the arbor into the Dead Sea. Now, if you're an avid fisherman, one of the places you want to go right now is head over to the Dead Sea, right? Cast your line in there. You'll be reeling out some big ones, boy. I'm telling you, it's gonna, you're going to have a great time fishing at the Dead Sea, right? Well, only if you want to cast your line in there and watch your bait just float on the top of the water. Because we know that the Dead Sea is just that. It's dead. It's the deepest rift in the world. Its lowest point is the Dead Sea, which is 1,312 feet below sea level. Check this out. We know that tap water is 1% salt. Ocean water is right at 7%. The Great Lakes, the Great Salt Lakes in Utah are 12% salt. But the Dead Sea is 33% salt, almost five times saltier than the ocean. The sea is, the sea is heavier than the swimmers, <laughs> which makes them more buoyant. So you stay afloat with no effort. Look at Carla showing off there. (laughs) 
Right now, we see that the waters from the Jordan River flow into it, into it, bringing many different kinds of minerals into it. And because of that, there is no outlet for the waters to flow. It is some five times saltier than the ocean, ocean waters, and thus unable to support life. It is a dead sea. But what we see here and what we read here, God is going to heal those waters to the point where there will be an abundance of life in it. So if you book a spot by the Dead Sea for this period of time, definitely bring your fishing poles. Because the water that was once dead is now filled with fish and fishermen casting their lines and the fishing is going to be great. I love fishing by the shore. I, I love that kind of fishing. I'm not a fishing person. In the, I don't like to fish in the boat, especially when I'm around John Davis, because John Davis always tries to drown me whenever I get in the water. It's true. That's his family. They'll tell you every time John tries to drown me. I don't know why. I don't know what I've done to him, but he always comes up underneath and pushes the boat over. He thinks it's funny. But it's going to be a great time of fishing at this particular time. So bring your poles. There will remain certain areas the former dead, uh, of the former Dead Sea that would keep its old characteristics. Perhaps this was so that the useful minerals um, gained from the Dead Sea would still be available from these places. Along the sides of the river, there were remarkable fruit trees with leaves that will not wither and fruit that will never fail. And in some unknown way, their leaves will be used for medicine, for healing. What a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. He brings life where there was death. Fish swim where there was formerly scum. How does this relate to us? I think the picture is pretty simple. We all remember that there was a time when we were dead in our sin. We were like the Dead Sea, lifeless, having the wrong things poured into us. But then we made the decision to come to Christ, and we were filled with his living waters. We were transformed into a living body. The Holy Spirit brought life where there was nothing but death. That's what God has done to us, that new life-giving water that was poured into each one of us. Aren't you excited about that? Amen. Amen. Verse 13. Thus says the Lord God, this shall be the boundaries by which shall divide the land for an inheritance among the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph, Joseph shall have two portions. You shall divide it for an inheritance, each one equally with the other. For I swore to give it to your forefathers, and this land shall fall to you as an inheritance. The new kingdom envisioned by Ezekiel included a new temple, a new way of life, a new quality of life, and in his final vision, a new land. This land is not only in quality, new in quality, but it's also in the arrangements of the tribes tribal units that occupy it. Seven tribes will be located north of the temple area and the city of Jerusalem. 
and we will have five tribes are located south of the sacred district described in Ezekiel 45, verses 1 through 8. So we see here, oops, back. The, the seven tribes to the north, right here, and the other five tribes down here. This is the sacred area right in here. Um, so the five tribes located to the south of the uh, district that I just pointed out. The central sacred district contains uh, carefully defined areas for the sanctuary, the city, the priests, uh, the, uh, the, the prince, the Zadok priests, and the Levites. So that's this area right in here. When we see that the, sac the sacred district is located ge geographically in the center of the land. So we see that this is not a symbolic or spiritual land. Gave specific board, God gave specific borders to mark it out. There was real land that would be given to the real 12 tribes of Israel. As with the division of the land under Joshua, the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh would each have their portion. Verse 14 read, I raised my hand in an oath to give it to your fathers, and this is the land shall fall to you. So again, God emphasizes that this was a real land that would continue and fulfill the promises of a real land to Israel's um, patriarchs. God made these promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 13 and 15. In chapter 15, he said, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. He gave that promise as well to Isaac in Genesis 26 and Jacob in Genesis 28. This granting of the land in the millennium kingdom was an extension and a fulfillment of those long ago and often repeated promises. Verse 15. This shall be the boundary of the land on the north side from the gate sea by way of the Hethlon to the entrance of Zedad, Hamath, Berthoth, Sibram, which is between the border of Damascus and the border of Hamath, Hazar, Hetcom, I'm, doing, I'm trying, which is by the border of Haran. The boundary shall extend from the seas of Hazar, Enon, at the border of Damascus, and on the north, towards the north, is the border of Hamath. This is the north side. The east side from between Haran, Damascus, Gilead, and the land of Israel shall be the Jordan from the north border to the eastern sea you shall measure. This is the east side. The south side toward the south shall extend from Tamar as far as the waters of Meribeth Kedesh, to the brook of Egypt, to the great sea. This is the south side toward the sea, towards the south. The west side shall be the great sea from the south border to a point opposite Lebo Hamath. This is the west side. So in verses 14 through 20, we see that the land allocated to the different tribes. Using landmarks on the north, east, south, and west, God describes the boundaries of Israel in the period of Ezekiel's temple. 
This is the area which God swore to give to the nations in Genesis 15 and Numbers 34, which was ruled by Solomon. We see that many, that, that many landmarks are listed, but we believe that since the ge geography of this part of the world will be significantly transformed right before this period begins, it's impossible to exactly mark what these places will mark in the coming age. In general, we can say that this is an area somewhat larger than the land of Israel occupies in the Old Testament. Again, keep in mind that the Jews have never occupied all this land that God had promised them, nor has this promise ever been rescinded. And so the borders we see here will be similar to the, those promised to Israel during the time of Moses in Numbers 34. It's the Lord's land, and he will divide it as he, as he sees fit. And here's a great thing. He won't have to deal with the U.N. to do this. <laughs> it's his land, and he can do what he wants to do with it. Verse 21. So you shall divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. You shall divide it by lot for an inheritance among yourselves and among the allies who stay in your midst, who bring forth sons in your midst. And they shall be to you as a native born among the sons of Israel. They shall be allotted an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And in the tribe with which the alien stays, there you shall give him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. Now, this is interesting. There will be provisions made for the stranger in the land, for the sojourner. Though foreigners had always been allowed to live in Israel, in the millennium, they will be allowed to enjoy other privileges previously granted only to Israelites. Though the millennial age will be a time of blessings for believing Israel, believing Gentiles will also enjoy God's blessing. Now, in chapters 48, I'm going to try to summarize most of it going through it. Um, in Ezekiel's final chapter, he deals largely with land allocation to each tribe. So let's take a look at the map. So we see Dan has the first part up at the top uh, in the northmost tribe. Gad, the southernmost. Each tribe gets one of 13 cross-sections running from the Mediterranean Sea to the eastern border. Mediterranean Sea towards the east. Okay? The holy rectangle encompassed Jerusalem. The future city will sit on a more than 2.7 square miles. Today, the old city of Jerusalem is only one square mile. So again, we're talking about this area right here. Verse 9 in chapter 48. The allotment that you shall set apart to the Lord shall be 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 in width. The holy allotment shall be for, those, for these, namely for the priests, towards the north, 25,000 cubits in length, towards the west, 10,000 in width, towards the east, 10,000 in width, and towards the south, 25,000 in length, and the sanctuary of the Lord shall be in its midst. It shall be for the priests who are sanctified of the sons of Zadok, 
who have kept my charge, who did not go astray when the sons of Israel went astray as the Levites went astray. It shall be an allotment to them from the allotment of the land, a most holy place by the borders of the Levites. So as previously described in chapter 45, this was the area that Israel gave back to the Lord. It contained the temple described in, in 40 through 43 with the sanctuary of the Lord in the center. Right there. Now, it's no accident that the sacred district is set up near the center of the country and the temple worship is in the center of the sacred district. For the worship of God should be the heart and center of everything we do. Verses 13 through 14, bordering the area of the priests was the land God set aside for the Levites who were serving at the temple to support and assist the work of the priests. In verses 15 through 20, we see here God apportioned land for Jerusalem in the kingdom period. It included land for dwelling and common land. So all this is taking place right in here. The city is about a, a mile and a half square with an open space on each side and land for cultivating to the east and to the west. Once again, we'd be hard-pressed to overlook the number of details that are given here. There would be land for farms and gardens, bringing food to the people and workers of the city. This city will be where the Lord will ever be present. He'll be right in the midst of his people. Whereas cities of today have always been known as places of moral corruption and rebellion, this city will be a place of eternal rest, refuge, and personal fellowship with others and God. Can you imagine that? That is so awesome. Verse 21 reads, The remainder shall be for the prince on the one side and on the other of the holy allotment and of the properties of the city in front of the 25, in front of the 25,000 cubits of the allotment towards the east borders and westward in front of the 25 towards the west border alongside the portion. It shall be for the prince and the holy allotment and the sanctuary of the house shall be in the middle of it. Exclusive of the property of the Levites and the property of the city which are in the middle of that which belongs to the prince. Everything between the borders of Judah and the border of Benjamin shall be for the prince. So as previously described in, verse, in chapter 45, there will be land set aside for the uh, prince that the Messiah puts, has ruling over his people. This land will be bordered by the allotment for the tribes of Judah on the north and Benjamin on the south. The divided allotment with three sacred areas between the eastern and western portions is most unusual. The placement and significance of this segment of the land remains still a mystery. Not quite sure why that's there. In verses 23 through 29, is listed the land allotment for the seven tribes north of um, the Lord's district. Now, the list continues with the land allotted for the tribes to the south of the Lord's district. 
Each of the tribes will be restored to the land and none of them will be forgotten before God. Verse 30. These are the um, exits of the city on the north side. 4,500 cubits by measurement shall be the gates of the city named for the tribes of Israel. Three gates toward the north gate, three gates towards the north, the gates of Reuben, one, the gates of Judah, one, the gates of Levi, one. On the east side, 4,500 cubits shall be three gates, the gates of Joseph, one, the gate of Benjamin, one, and the gate of Dan, one. On the south side, 4,500 cubits by the measurement shall be three gates, the gates of Simeon, one, the gate of Issachar, one, the gate of Zebulun, one. And on the west side, 45,000 cubits, 4,500 cubits shall be three gates, the gates of Gad, one, the gate of Asher, one, and the gate of Naphtali, one. So verses 30 through 34 tells us the, tells us the city will be 2.25 miles square, one and a half miles on each side, and have 12 gates. There will be three gates on each side, and each one representing one of the tribes of Israel. The tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh are represented by Joseph, and Levi is added as well. Now, as we close in, chap- in verse 35, we read this. The city, this, the city shall be 18,000 cubits round about, and the name of the city shall be that day. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. And the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. The most remarkable aspect of the new city of Jerusalem will be the presence of the Lord. God's glory had departed from the city as a prelude to its judgment. And its return will be a signal to Jerusalem's blessing. This fact so impressed Ezekiel that he wrote that the city will be given a new name. The Lord is there. As the prophet Ezekiel had stated repeatedly, God will return to dwell with his people, no longer worshiping lifeless idols and engaging in detestable practices. Israel will enjoy the Lord's holy presence in the millennium. Let me read you close with this poem that I found. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. One of the names of the Lord our God which speaks of his love and his care. One of the names of the Lord our God, which speaks of his love and his care, is called in the Hebrew, Jehovah Shammah. And it means the Lord is there. Listen to this. In your hours of sorrow and your times of grief, when your soul seems filled with despair, reflect, reflect on the words of Jehovah Shammah and know In your heart, he is there. When you're flat on your back or you're suffering pain and you're feeling that life is not fair, start counting your blessings from Jehovah Shammah. Just think on his love. He is there. When your plans go away and your dreams fall apart, when when your burdens are heavy to bear, lean hard on the promise, Jehovah Shammah. You are never alone. He is there. When the devil's temptations press hard on your soul and he deviously seeks to ensnare, run quickly to Jesus, your Jehovah Shammah. Then your battle is won 
and he is there. When your heart overflows with thanksgiving and praise and you pour out your love in your prayer, there is rejoicing in heaven by Jehovah Shammah. For he hears and we know he is there. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's all stand. This has been so much fun. I thank you guys for being patient with me, with my stuttering and my one day rushing through it, the next day taking too long with it, and whatever inf other infirmities have been present when I try to teach. I've been so excited about this, and, and uh, I look forward to Dave's teaching on, on, on the Bible that's coming up. Hopefully, you'll have that ready for next week. Um, and then we will maybe go into the book of Daniel, but we'll see where the Lord takes us after that. I want you guys to remember what I said in the beginning as we go away from here. Please remember Paul, Tara's grandfather, any of us who are sick and ailing, but pray believing. Please, guys, please. Our God is so awesome and so mighty and so wonderful. He is in control. There's, there's nothing that slips through the cracks with him. You know that, right? Nothing slips through the cracks. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you are aware that you still sit on the throne, Lord. You are the true and living God, Lord. You still reign forevermore. You're still in control, and we're grateful for that, Lord. We thank you for this evening and everyone you brought here tonight, Lord. And again, Lord, we lift up those who are sick and ailing amongst us, Lord, and we just pray your healing hand would be upon them. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.